Today we come to the end of our series in John's Gospel. We've been in chapters 5 through 12, and it's a big Bible book. Why have we studied John? In his own words, the writer's words, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John is an evangelistic book, but it's also a book for Christians that they might come to understand more fully and more deeply what it means to have life in Jesus' name. Now today I'd like us to read from chapter 12, verse 20, through to verse 50, the end of the chapter. John 12, verse 20. Among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. And so the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? And so Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you might become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe it in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again, as I have said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their hearts and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in Jesus, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. 
The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that this commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Now, there are three headings on the back of the service sheet to help us understand this. First, let's pause and pray for God's help. Our Father, may we heed the words of Jesus, who said, The light is among you only a little longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. Our Father, if in someone's life here the light of life has begun to shine into the darkness of their soul, and that light is still engaged to overcome the darkness, we pray that by your Holy Spirit today it will. The light would flood in, and that person would give in to Jesus. And for those of us who have been converted through the grace and mercy of Christ, flood our hearts with deep emotion, deep devotion. Show us something more of what it means to have life in His name. Enlarge our affections for Jesus. And show us what the Christian life is like and enable us so to live it for your glory. And we pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Now, throughout these chapters in John's Gospel, the eyewitness testimony of John, we have seen again and again the glory of Jesus. We saw it when he healed the blind man in chapter 5. In chapter 6, when he fed 5,000 people, when he walked on water, when he said, I am the bread of life, whoever comes to me will not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. We saw his glory when in chapter 8 he said, I am the light of the world. When he healed another blind man in chapter 9, when he said, chapter 10, I am the good shepherd, week in, week out, chapter in, chapter out, day in, day out, in Jesus' life and ministry, we have seen his glory. In all these events, statements, and claims to divinity, in all his invitations to humanity, promises of salvation and for salvation, Jesus is glorified. God the Father is glorified. No more so than in chapter 11, that extraordinary, glorious account of the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Immediately when he heard that Lazarus was ill, Jesus said at the beginning of that account, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified uh, through it. The glory of Jesus. But at what cost? His own death. And now we have come to that point in John's Gospel, which focuses on his death. From the end of chapter 11 through to chapter 20, it covers one week of Jesus' life, all the events leading to and surrounding his death. Last Sunday, we looked at the end of chapter 11 through to the middle of chapter 12, and John's big emphasis is on the necessity of Jesus' substitutionary death, how he took our place and bore our sin and bore the wrath for our sin. Somebody asked me, earlier, what exactly is substitutionary atonement? It means that Jesus died on his cross, bearing the sin of all who would believe in him. And more than that, bearing the just and righteous anger, the wrath of God for that sin. And Jesus died in our place as our substitute. And because he was the sinless gun of God, he atoned or paid the price or made right the judgment of God. Atonement means the extinguishing of God's wrath for those who believe. Now, that's the background. Three points today, carefully chosen. And the first and last may 
just slightly change our perspective on how we understand the cross. Number one, the glory and power of the cross. Secondly, how the cross divides humanity. And thirdly, the cross is the Christian life, the glory and the power of the cross. And if I were to ask you this question, what do you associate with the glory of Jesus? Were we to sing, glory be to God, or to God be the glory, to God be the glory, what comes to mind? To God be the glory, His miracles, to God be the glory, His resurrection, His ascension, His coronation, His reign, His return in glory. To God be the glory. Listen to the writer of the hymn who said, This is what fundamentally it means, or supremely it means, to God be the glory. To God be the glory, great things he hath done. So loved he the world that he gave us his son. John 3 16. Here's the glory who yielded his life, a redemption for sin. And open the life gate that all may go in. To God be the glory, the cross. Praise the Lord. Come to the Father through Jesus the Son. That's John 12. He is lifted up and calls all people to himself. Give him the glory. Where does God lay upon his Son the greatest weight of glory? On his cross. Just so we are sure, the hymn writer goes on. O perfect redemption. The purchase of blood to every believer, the promise of God, the vilest attender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Let the people rejoice. And when you sing that wonderful hymn, uh, to God be the glory. It's a cross we should see. Jesus is supremely glorified through his death on the cross. Let me show you that in the text in John 12, verse 23. Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The hour is John's way in his gospel of referring to the death of Jesus. The hour means it is an appointed time. The preceding context, the end of chapter 11, makes it quite clear when Jesus says, The hour has come For the Son of Man to be glorified, he is talking about his cross. What follows in verse 23, that bit about the seed dying, and if the seed does not die, it cannot bear fruit, makes it clear he is talking about the cross. What follows in verses 27 to 36 makes it clear that he is talking about the cross. He said these things to show what kind of death he was going to die. The hour is the cross. And the cross is when the Son of Man, let me tell you who the Son of Man is. Daniel 7, in my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a Son of Man. He came into the presence of God the Father. To him was given dominion and a glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom shall be one that will never be destroyed. When is Jesus? What is the key event that makes him king of that everlasting kingdom? It is not his coronation, it is his cross. The hour, the cross, has come when the Son of Man, take that prophecy in Daniel of the glory and majesty of Jesus Christ and hang it on a cross. The hour has come when the Son of Man will be glorified. Jesus is saying that when the Son of Man dies on the cross, it is on the cross that he is supremely glorified, not after the cross, not at his resurrection or his coronation or his return. Yes, he is glorified in all of these things, but he is supremely glorified when he is raised up on a cross to die. Now, That's what he's saying. What does it mean? It means this, and this is important. The resurrection of Jesus, his coronation as king, 
of God's eternal kingdom, his return at the end of time to bring in the new creation. And more than that, the new life we have in Jesus and the resurrection to everlasting life, all of that, and take that all in your arms and try and get your head around the weight of glory that is in all of that. All of it is a consequence of the cross. Sometimes we give the impression or think that all the glorious stuff that follows the cross makes the cross work or makes the cross effective. But that's the wrong way around. The cross makes it all happen. Victory over death was not won when Jesus was raised from the dead. Victory over death was won when Jesus died on the cross. When Jesus died on the cross, his words in John's gospel were these, it is finished. Not, it is nearly finished. Not, it is almost completely done. It is finished. That is why Jesus is supremely glorified on the cross. The cross is the power of God for salvation for all who believe. Not the empty tomb. You can be persuaded that Jesus was raised from the dead. You can want resurrection to eternal life. But the resurrection of Jesus is not the power of God for the salvation of those who believe. Nor is the coronation of Christ, nor of his return or his reign or his judgment. You cannot have saving faith in Jesus by laying hold of the empty tomb or the crown on his head or the reigning Christ or his return. Nothing will save us. Nothing is the power to convert other than the cross. Nothing matters in the end than what you make of the cross of Calvary. The cross of Christ determines one's destiny. Your decision concerning the cross, your response and reaction to it determines your eternal destiny. And that is why so many turn away. People like to linger long by an empty tomb to contemplate whether Jesus really did rise from the dead. People like to linger and think of a Christ who reigns. People like to think of an eternity with him in a new creation. But people, when they are convicted by the cross of Christ, where he is supremely glorified, often will not linger because they do not see it as the power of God, but as foolishness and a profound offense to their humanity. Let's look on at verse 27. Jesus says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. That is an insight into the cost and the agony Jesus would endure on the cross. Not the physical agony, awful as that would be, but the spiritual agony of bearing sin and bearing wrath. This is the Gethsemane moment in John's Gospel. He contemplates the awful horror of his death. Now is my soul troubled. There is no glibness about the suffering. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, what's the purpose? The cross. What does that mean? The cost. For this purpose, for the cost that I will have to bear. Every time you use the word cross, we should use another word or a synonym for it. Cost, victory. Cost, victory. Weakness, power, shame, glory. Jesus says, 
That is why I have come, Father, glorify your name. He does not pray, Father, save me. He prays, Father, glorify your name. And what does it mean for God's name to be glorified? It means Jesus suffering on the cross. Now, is that true? Is it true that Jesus is supremely glorified on his cross? Is it true when he says, Father, glorify your name? That means suffering, dying, so that there will be fruitfulness. Yes, it does. How do we know? Because what we need at this point is a thunderbolt from heaven to say yes. And we get it in the voice of God the Father. A voice from heaven said, I have glorified my name. Presumably a reference to all that has come before his miracles, the stuff we have read about in John 5 to 11, and I will glorify it again. Now, maybe that's a reference to beyond the cross. I've glorified his name, my name, in the miracles and in the resurrection. No, it is the cross. How do we know? Read on, verse 29. The crowd that stood there heard it, said it had thundered. Others said, an angel spoke. Jesus said, this voice has come for your sake now, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out when I, when I am lifted up from the earth, that's his cross, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. Has to be the cross. It is the cross. We are left in no doubt that it is the cross and the suffering on the cross and the victory of the cross, not the empty tomb, that Jesus is supremely glorified. And the glory of the cross is tied to its power. It pronounces judgment on humanity. Now is the judgment of this world. It pronounces judgment on the ruler of this world, Satan. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. It pronounces salvation. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Now, second point. The cross divides humanity. No wonder. The cross to you as you sit here this morning is either the power of God to salvation or it is foolishness. It's absurd. It's banal. The cross divides humanity. What makes you a Christian is what you make of the cross. Let me say it again, only because John keeps repeating himself. Why does John keep repeating himself? Because he gives you, in God's word, a chance and a chance and a chance and a chance and a chance. What makes you a Christian is what you make of the cross. The only thing that matters in the end is what you make of the cross. Imagine if I sat with someone as they died. What do I say to a Christian as I sit with them when they die? Remember, your sins are forgiven. Remember the resurrection and the life. Remember that you are a son of the light. Remember you will be raised to everlasting. What do I say to a non-Christian as I sit with them when they die? Do I promise them resurrection? Do I focus on the empty tomb or do I take them to Calvary and the cross? Well, the answer is obvious, isn't it? It's obvious from what Jesus says. It's not obvious from what people do. Your decision about this, that, or the other, your friends and colleagues, those we share the gospel with, people who, God willing, will come to our carol services, their decisions about this, that, and the other might be important, but it's their decisions about the cross that matters for their eternal destiny. And I've alluded to this verse in so many ways this morning, 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the message of the cross is foolishness to 
to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. There are many of us in this room who once thought the cross was foolish, who now think it's the very center of history, the very epicenter of the power of God, the place from where the light of Jesus shines most keenly in the power to change our lives, not to convert us simply, but to change us every day. How do you go from foolishness to glory by the grace and the mercy of God? So which is it for you? Is it foolishness or the power of God? The cross divides humanity. Now, I want to get to the application and the third point in this talk and give time to it. There are reactions to Jesus all through the pages of John's gospel. 90% of them plus are no. I will not have him. I will not have him. And they are people who had the great privilege in history of being on the earth when he was on the earth. Think of it. We have to base our decisions on eyewitness testimony. They were there. But they would not believe in him for all sorts of reasons. Human reasons, like as we read, they were too ashamed they loved the glory and praise of others more than they loved the glory of Jesus. Had Jesus come in triumphant power, many more would have followed him. But because the very center of his life and the center of history was a cross, many would not because of the shame and the indignity of it. You see, the, the cross if it is the center of your faith, makes you realize the shame and indignity of your own sin. Only a Christian would be associated with the cross because it is the least dignified thing to be associated with because we are all undone by our sin. Division. Division, and I've seen it over the years as a minister. Do you ever think in your heart of hearts how frustrating and discouraging it is that hardly anyone believes? Or when you try and share the gospel with people again and again, they will not believe, they will not see, they will not come. How many invitations have you extended over your life to services or carol services? Hundreds. Thousands. And people come along and they hear the gospel and they conclude in their hearts, it's foolish. And then the Holy Spirit convicts them and they change. Jesus warns us that the light will not be with us forever. Verses 35 to 36 let me read them again, and let me read them on the basis that they might be just the verses for someone sitting here. The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. When you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. What does that mean? If you think ahead of your life, you might think you've got um, 50 more years to live. It may be that God, in His providence, and God has the right to do this, if you refuse again and again, even at a young age, the offer of salvation, He may harden your heart. He may blind your eyes. He says that. We've got to come to terms with that. He is God, after all. The Lord Jesus has a globe to take the gospel to the nations of the earth. No wonder he might be frustrated with the Western world or with countries like Scotland that like to bask in the light but will not turn to the cross where the light shines most keenly. The Spirit of God moves, works where he has a hearing, do not presume he will continue to invite you to trust him.
Maybe it's your second time of asking or your hundredth time of asking. If you are still hearing Christ ask you clearly to trust him, if you are still conscious of being in the light, then do so before it is too late. While you have the light, believe in the light that you might become sons of light. Now, as soon as Jesus says that, in the end of chapter 12. He quotes from Isaiah 53, which we had last Sunday night. Did we? We did. It's the most glorious chapter of the servant, and yet people don't believe. And then he quotes from Isaiah 6. They can't believe because I've blinded their eyes now. I've stopped up their ears. That's, in John's gospel, Jesus saying, look, there comes a point where your hearts will be hardened by God. And just as we wrestle with all of that, the chapter ends by Jesus saying, look, put all that to one side. Yes, I am sovereign, but I have come not to judge, but to save you. So the last word in evangelism in our series in John is come to Christ. Not, I've hardened your hearts. The last word in our series, in John, if you're not a Christian, Jesus cried out and said, verse 44, whoever believes in me, believes in the one who sent me. Whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me will not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words, and does not keep them. I do not judge him, for I do not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He's not contradicting himself. The point that he's making is, look, I know these things are true. I know that God is sovereign. I am judge. The cross judges humanity. But look, don't debate my sovereignty over your salvation at lunch today. Come to me. That's what he's saying, you see. Don't, don't, don't. Get the minister at the front door. And start speculating about understanding the mind of God. Ask him to pray with you that you might turn to Christ. Jesus has to judge us in the end, but he does not want to. Now let's turn with time remaining to our last point, which is very important, a way of application of all of this. The cross is the Christian life. John 12 is a difficult chapter, and uh, when I get stuck as a preacher, uh, Roger was away this week, which was most inconvenient, um, I like to have him around to tell me what it's all about, and he's very good at that. Um, you listen to sermons from other preachers. And almost everyone I listened to, um, I think they all got to the same answer in the end, but they all said, look, the, the headings that you've got written down in your notes are actually wrong. Because what happens, you see, in the real world of ministry, you've got to submit these headings like on a Thursday. If you're the minister, Friday lunchtime. The reason they're not changed is because it was Friday lunchtime-ish, a little later. Now, the words I've chosen for the third point are chosen very carefully and very precisely. The cross is the Christian life. Notice, now you've got to get your head around this, not the cross in the Christian life, as if it were some part of your life as a Christian on this earth. I mean, there is no cross in the new creation. There is no memory of a cross in the new creation. Jesus will bear the scars in the new creation, but our memory will be and not of the horror of the cross. We'll not need that to encourage us to remember what grace is. But on this life, in this world, the cross is the Christian life, not the cross in the Christian life, nor the cross is the example for the Christian life, but the cross is the Christian life. So John says, so Jesus says. Now, look at the text, and I'll show you. Back to verses 23 and 24. Jesus is talking about himself. That's obvious. Just look again. Jesus answered them, 
The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. That's him talking about himself and his death. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus' death is the necessary condition for the germination of life for a multitude of people. His death, the death of that one seed, the death of the Son of Man, yields a miracle harvest of souls, and you and I are included in that number if we believe. But is verse 24 only talking about Jesus? Is the dying to self and the taking up of a cross to bear much fruit, only talking about Jesus. Verse 25, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Who's he talking about, himself or us? Verse 26, definitely us. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also, what do you, how would you explain that? Just take a text out of context. Rip it out. Stick it on a tea towel. Put it on your, or your wall. You don't put tea towels on your walls, but a little picture. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am, there will my servant also be. On the back of the tea towel, a picture of glory. That's not what's going on here. Where I am. On a cross. There my servant also will be. If anyone serves me in the way that I serve the Father, the Father will honor him. He's talking about his own death. He's talking about us, mirroring our lives on his cross. Then in verse 27, he's back to talking about himself. So in between talking about his death and the cross, he is talking about the Christian life. The cross is the Christian life the cross is how Jesus judges and says. The cross is where the power of God is manifest. And that's what we point people to. Yes, we point them to the empty tomb. Yes, we point them to the miracles. Yes, we point them to the coronation, the reign and the return of Jesus. Yes, we point them to the benefits of salvation, everlasting life. Do you want everlasting life? Yes. Have you understood the cross? That's what matters in the end. Because it all comes from that. And what is the cross? It is cost. It is bearing cost for the cause of the gospel. That's what we point people to. And the way that Christ died and the way that fruitfulness was wrought is the way we are to live and the way that fruitfulness is wrought. Why does living by denying self and taking up your cross or being willing to suffer from the gospel extend the kingdom of God? Because it's a living reminder of what Jesus did to save humanity. It shows people that we are with Christ in the way that he redeems the world. Verses 25 and 26 are stark, aren't they? Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am there will my servant also be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. It is a stark choice. Is it not? It is not whoever, on balance, loves me more than they love this life. It is not someone who follows me much of the time and not all of the time that my Father will honor. Verses 27 and 28 are about Jesus, but are they also about us? Just notice them with me again. Now is my soul troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it. 
and I will glory it again. I can look out this morning on this service and the one before, and in most of your lives, let me say that, in most of your lives, if at every Christian here that I know, I have watched you in different ways, and it's down to the ordinary of how you are as a Christian at work or in studies or wherever it is. I have watched you pray. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, this particular bit of heat or cost of being a Christian, or this particular resistance of temptation or battle with the flesh. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. What is it like when you pray, Father, glorify? Is it not like, our Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come? How does that prayer get answered in our church's life and in our individual lives? When we, what are we praying when we say, hallowed be your name? We're probably praying, please God, let me for another week be willing to bear the cross of Christ and deny self. That's what we're praying. And as Jesse has reminded us in parts of the world, when people pray, hallowed be their name, they are saying, look, I will do anything. I will do anything. The metaphor of light and darkness is used through John's gospel. It is light and darkness. At the entry point of the Christian life, there is no half-light or half-darkness. There is no shadowy kind of Christianity. Nicodemus, when he came to Jesus, came out of the night into the light when he was with Jesus, at the end of the conversation, at the end of the discussion, when he was not yet convinced, he did not go out into the half day. He went out into the night. If you are hovering on the edge of Christianity and you leave church today, you go back out into the night, into the darkness, not the half-light, not the no-man's land of nearly in, nearly out. There is no half-light or half-darkness, no shadow a kind of Christianity you are either a son of light or a son of darkness. You are either a child of God or a child of this world. Now, here's the problem. And if I didn't get this right, I would send you home and send myself home to chuck in the towel. The problem is I don't live like that as a Christian. If you were to describe the Reverend Robin Sitzer's life, it would be he's a shadowy kind of sometimes light, sometimes dark minister. He does not look like a son of light. I don't live like verse 25 and 26. I love stuff about this life. I don't hate the world in the sense of absolute clarity as to where the neighbors in our street are and are going, to actually think I've done extraordinarily well if I invite them to a carol service. You know what I do? Here's a confession. I invite enough to make me stand up here with some credibility and say you should do it too. That's what I do. And for years I stood up here and I told you to do it, never did it. That's what Jesus is talking about. It's a burden for people's souls. It's so deep and so strong that we follow him. But I don't live like that, and nor do you. I warrant. The metaphor of light and dark describes not only the entry point to the Christian life, but it describes the Christian life itself. There is no half-light or half-darkness. The problem is I do not live like that. Light and dark, shadowy is a much better description of me. So does that mean we are not real Christians? Now, let me tell you why it does not mean that. And follow with me. Let me tell you what a real Christian knows and feels. If you are a real Christian here this morning, this is you. You are like Paul in Romans 7. You are concluding often like I am, what a wretched, wretched mess I am. Yep. What a compromised life I live. How black is my sin? Why is it that I have not defeated that sin? Yes, it is. Well, no, it's not. It's there at volume two, and it's been at volume two for 40 years. It's not any better. Why is that? 
But then the Christian knows not only Romans 7, wretched man that I am, but Romans 8, that a fundamental change has taken place in our inner being. I look out on you and I have the full confidence as I see something of the fruit of Christ in your lives, that your inner being, your soul, the very center of your humanity is Christ's. The Spirit has you. You are no longer walking according to the flesh, but walking according to the Spirit. You are a child of God. You are a son of light. You know that because you know Romans 8. You know it because you're battling with sin. You know it because the Bible describes your life and the true Christian. When faced with verses like 25 to 28 in John 12 and the implications for their lives to live cross-shaped, denying self, suffering lives for the gospel, the true Christian feels just like the Apostle Paul felt their weakness and their compromise. Yet, as they feel it, their heart misses another beat because there is nothing else they want to do more than live like this for Christ. The real Christian finds themselves against all their instincts. And you see it often in Christian ministry, people who are training for Christian ministry, people who are Christian ministers wanting to chuck in the towel, or Christians out there in the real world wanting to chuck in the towel, or to chuck in the towel of being known as a Christian. They find themselves praying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. And what they are praying is, Father, glorify your name. And when a Christian prays, glorify your name, they pray like Christ prayed, glorify your name. This is why I am here. I am here to deny self and to take up my cross and and to die that fruitfulness might be born. That's what you're praying. And the real Christian cannot help themselves they pray it. The real Christian wants to die to self and take up their cross. The real Christian wants to suffer for the sake of the gospel. Is that right? We often shy away from that. I want to suffer for the sake of the gospel, not because I'm a masochist, because I know, I know, I know, I've seen it. It's all over Scripture, and I see it in my Savior. That's how fruitfulness is born. That's how it is on this life. I've got millions of years with Jesus ahead of me on this life is suffering for the sake of the gospel. Now, we are not glib about it any more than Jesus was. It is, though, because that is how God and Jesus is glorified. We are not light to the cost of suffering, but we endure it because it is how God and Jesus are glorified. The real Christian, the real Christian is someone whose life looks nothing like this. For perhaps, there was a, a man last week who spoke to me For 10 years of his life, he was away from Jesus. The first thing I did in counseling him was point him to someone in the church who had been away from Jesus for 30 years. And I said, you are nothing. And he said, will Jesus hold that against me? Of course he won't. They're back. They're back because they want to come back. Someone brought them back or Christ brought them back, but they're back. The real Christian says... I will never leave you nor forsake you ever again, but we will, but we'll be back, we'll come back. We're fitful, but we are converted. We are converted. There's a spirit in us that prompts us, that awakens us, that drags us back, that comes us back to the cross. The real Christian says, I cannot do this for another day. I'm not fit for this, but I don't want to do anything else. The real Christian will do anything for the Lord. You see that, that, that what I'm not saying in any of this is that the cross is like a stick that beats our back and says, I did this for you, you did this for me. It's never saying that. The Bible never says that. It's when you appreciate the depth of the devotion, the affections for Jesus, when you appreciate what he did and that his spirit is in you for you to do the same, that you, you, you don't live by picking up a cross or denying self because you owe Jesus anything. It's because His Spirit's in you. And there's nothing you want to do with your life more than die if it means 
that some people will come to faith in Jesus. The real Christian will do anything for Jesus. The real Christian knows that the cross is the power of God for salvation and that suffering is what brings lasting fruit. Jesus' death gives us life. Dying to self gives way to the life of Christ within us. Dying to self is what God uses to draw people to point them to Jesus. Just think of it with a church plant. They meet this afternoon and things are moving on and they're going to hear this afternoon who the leadership team are and the small group leaders and it all becomes real, doesn't it? They're going to get a five-year financial plan. All the figures are there. It's a bit scary. Actually, when you think about what's ahead, or for those of you training to ministry, when you think about what's ahead, or for those of you going to work tomorrow, which is harder than any of us, when you think about what's ahead, you think, what you do is, in our heart of hearts, at least I do, maybe you don't, maybe you're so godly. Let's, let's put that down to earth. Father, actually, I do, don't want to do this. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to sign up for this. I'm not going to be part of this church. I'm going to be part of that church because it's just different kind of ministry. Or I'm going to shut up and not invite anyone to carol services. And I'm saying that to me, not you. We're not going to plan a church. I mean... Goodness me, what a pile of flax ahead with that. No. Glorify your name. Glorify your name. Glorify your name. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that we would appreciate and understand the depths of the teaching in a passage like this. It is good and rich food for our souls. And may we, Lord, our primary prayer is for any who hover in the half-light There is no such thing. We're either in the darkness or in the light. Lord, help us to give in to Jesus, to begin to pray to him as believers, not as outsiders. And all this we ask in his name and for his sake. Amen.